All right, gentlemen, how's it going? I'm well, thank you. You guys hanging in there? It's been a big day, huh? We had a lot of nice fluffy talks like the end of Christendom, so that was easy. Um, you're probably ready for something meaty at this point, right? I don't know how that, how that hit you. Um, I've heard that talk before, but uh, you know, it strikes me as, as painfully accurate and, and a a sad representation of where we're at as a society. It's good to know how we got there, but it's, it's kind of painful to know where we're at. And, you know, I, I'm not giving anybody any new information to tell you. If you just, you know, you look around at the world and, and it's, it's broken. Um, up is down, left is right, right is wrong. And as was pointed out today, the church has followed behind just a few steps. And they've adopted a lot of these uh, these broken and screwed up ideas in the culture. And, and I don't know how you feel about that, like how, how you think about responding to that. One of my first responses, my fleshly response is, I want to take my family and, uh, and just go to an island or something, right? And just, just eject out of society and let the whole thing burn down. I don't want to be around it. Unfortunately, that's not an option that the Bible gives us. <clears throat> The Bible tells us that we need to contend for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. And so that's going to be the, the subject of my message tonight. My message is, that's, a, that's not actually accurate, it's Jude's message. So what we're going to do tonight is a 10,000 foot overview of the entire book of Jude. Now, lest any of you are panicking and you don't know, the book of Jude is one chapter. So we can probably get this done. Um, but before we do that, before we go to the Word, let's, let's go to the Lord and uh, just ask for His guidance. King Jesus, oh, it's good to be here. It's good to be around these men. It's good to be reminded of your truth. It's good to be spurred on towards love and good deeds, provoked to act like men and, uh, and to get the job done. We thank you that we don't have to do it in our own strength, but we've got you working through us, and I pray that you would work through us now. I pray that you would make your word come alive in our hearts and that, uh, and that we would be changed by it, Jesus. So just ask for your presence in, in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, gang, this is going to be the kind of talk, um, this is going to be more like a Bible study, so that you, it will be helpful to you if you can have the book of Jude open. Um, if you're looking for the book of Jude, it's the second to last. So find Revelation chapter 1, and it's probably the page on the left, and uh, it's probably only one page. Jude, if you don't know, is the brother of James, which makes him the half-brother of Jesus. And that's kind of an interesting concept to think about. That, Of course, you know, Mary and Joseph had children after, uh, after Jesus. And so this is a book of the Bible written by a guy that's Jesus' little brother. And one thing that I think is interesting about that is he begins the book this way. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's interesting to me that he opens this book by pointing out that he is the brother of James, but he says he's the servant of Jesus Christ. And uh, so Jude starts out, as with all of the other brothers of Christ, brothers and sisters, not believing in him. And then apparently sometime after the resurrection, um, Jude is, is converted. And, and at this point in his life, the blood of the cross is now more significant to him than the blood in his veins. He, he doesn't presume to leverage that family relationship, but he says, even this guy who grew up with him, who was a, a half-brother, says, no, this is my Lord. And, uh, and that's instructive for us, um, that he is our Lord. Verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now again, this is a really interesting thought. I was making every effort to write one kind of letter. So if you imagine, you know, and I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but I can envision Jude, he's sitting there, 
he dips his, his quill in the ink and he's got his parchment and he's just, he's fired up about God and, and Jesus and his salvation. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to write a letter that encourages everybody. Uh, and we're, we're going to talk about the glories of God in this letter. And he puts the pen down and the words don't come out. He made every effort to write this, but instead he felt compelled to write a different kind of letter. The spirit led him to write something different. And what the Spirit compelled him to write was that we need to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And now that's that's noteworthy. Um, I think it's noteworthy because it demonstrates to me that there are times and seasons when different messages are needed in the in the Christian life and and in in the history of Christianity. Perhaps if this is your first time at one of these retreats, or maybe even if you've been to come into these for a while, you may have picked up on the fact that there is a strong emphasis on obedience, uh, on the judgment of, of God, on the seriousness of, uh, of taking the Bible as it's written. And it's possible you may look at that and say, you know, that stands in, in contrast to other men's conferences I've been at in the past. Like, why aren't we talking about God's grace and his love and, and things that are a little bit easier and a little more happy? And the, uh, the answer to that is, again, different seasons need different messages. Uh, I'm sure if you, if you got with any of the, the men that have spoken this weekend and asked them about God's grace and love and, and looked into their eyes, you'd see deep emotion, just desperate gratitude for God's grace and love. But that message is everywhere. That's not a message that is missing in our generation. The message in our generation that's missing is earnestly contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's what these men are doing. They're up here trying to earnestly contend for the faith to, to preserve what was given to us. So, Before we address what does that look like, the the contending, I want to start by looking at what is it that we are contending for, and that is the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You notice there's a a definite article there, so it's the faith, and the faith is that body of doctrine that constitutes genuine Christianity. It's it's basically the Bible. This This is the faith, the New Testament here. And, uh, and one way you can see an example of that, what, if we were going to try to define what is the faith, it's, it's, it's helpful to go back to the very beginning of Christianity. And so if you go to Acts 2, and <clears throat> you remember in Acts 2, this is the story of Pentecost, and, uh, and Peter preaches his, his famous sermon, and 3,000 people get saved, okay? Now you've got 3,000 converts. What are you going to do with them? Because we're talking about Christianity is a few days old, and you got 3,000 believers, and you don't have a Bible, and so what do you do? What, what, are these, what are these new converts? What do you tell them to go and do? And here's what it says in Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves, these are the converts now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers. So they devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching. And that's instructive for us. That's, that is the irreducible minimum of the faith. That is, it's the apostles' doctrine. The apostles were appointed by God to deliver his message uh, to the people for all generations to come. And you can see this throughout the New Testament. They say it of themselves. One notable place that you could read that would be 1 John 4, 6. And John says about himself and the other apostles, he says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the faith, as it's used here in this context, is not the act of believing. It's the substance of what we're supposed to believe. And the substance of what we are supposed to believe are the doctrines that were once for all delivered to the saints. This this body of writing that we all have got in front of us here that God inspired these apostles to write and deliver to us. It's also instructive, I think, that it says it was once for all delivered to the saints, which is to say we don't need new and additional revelation. We don't need Muhammad. We don't need Joseph Smith. 
We don't need Rob Bell. We don't need anybody to come along and tell us there's some new way to understand this or I have, I have some new thing to add to it. It was done. It was once for all delivered. The canon is closed. Um, all right. Let's go to verse 3. Verse 3, we get Jude's main message and his admonition, his reason for writing the book. And his reason is that we would earnestly contend for the faith. Now, that phrase, earnestly contend, um, that, that is a Greek word. The Greek word there is agonizomai. And um, I know that because I can use Google, and so not because I can speak Greek. But when you look up the word and you research it a little bit, you find out that agonizomai is this word that comes from the Colosseum, the fights at the Colosseum, the wrestling matches, the gladiators. And so it means to fight, to labor fervently, to strive. And if you actually, if you listen to the word agonizomai, you can hear in it, um, it's where we get our English word agonize, right? So as we are contending for the faith here, it evokes this idea, this this desperate fight to preserve, to maintain, to live out the truth. We agonize over the assault on the truth of Scripture, which is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we, we agonize in our, uh, in our efforts, in our conviction, in trying to preserve that and, and to fight for it. As we do that, and as we go through this whole message here, I've got two principles that I think overlay on top of this whole idea of contending. The first one is, as we contend for the faith, we do it, one, with relentless conviction, but that relentless conviction is also united with relentless love. Okay, so relentless conviction united with relentless love. And if you just want a couple anchor verses for that, Hebrews 10.23 would be a good one. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Okay, so that's the relentless conviction. We don't waver on the truth of Scripture. But we, we unite that with 1 Timothy 1.5, which says the goal of our instruction is love. Love that comes from a, a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. So as I understand earnestly contending for the faith, I'm using that phrase to talk about unwavering conviction executed in love that comes from a pure heart um, and, and, a, and a sincere conscience. And I, it seems to me this is how the apostles contended for the faith, and that's our example for how we are to contend for the faith. All right, now he gets into his warning. <clears throat> For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All right. Certain persons have crept into the church unnoticed. Right? We're, we're, he's talking about believers here. He's not talking about uh, you know, an, uh, unsaved people. He's saying, he's saying about our community, we've got people that have snuck into it, and, uh, and they're, they're perverting the grace of God. Um, these teachers, they didn't barge in through the front door. They came in through the side door, subtly. And that's, that's of course, the only way that it's going to work and be effective, right? If, if after me, the next guy gets up and says, hey, gang, just forget everything you heard this weekend. God's not real. We're all going to go worship Zeus. Nobody would take that seriously because it's just not, it's not the ethos of what we've been doing here. If you want to seed doubt, if you want to you know, sow deceit into people's lives, you do it subtly. You come in through the side and you start just tweaking the truth a little bit. You don't just smack it front, front and center. You twist it. Um, kind of like Satan did in the garden with, with Eve. He didn't just come up to her and say, you know, you should forget about God. Just reject him entirely. No, he, he kind of came in and he seeded doubt. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, who is this guy? Like, you shouldn't take him seriously. He's not got your best interest at heart. You know, you should, he's just, he doesn't want you to have any fun. He's really a killjoy. He's seeding all of these, these things sideways without coming at it front on. And, um, so as we work through Jude, as we consider where the battleground is, um, it's always good to have that, um, that thought in the back of our minds, this underlying thought that this is, this is how the people come in. I'm not talking about the people that are coming and, and teaching some new religion. I'm talking about those who have crept into the church and are twisting the truth of the gospel, okay? And usually, 
um, as in the garden, that has at the heart of it two characteristics. One is a rebellion against the authority of God and his desires. And, and then two, the promotion of the authority of man and man's desires. That's usually what these, uh, these, these deceitful ideas are, are born out of. Um, all right. <clears throat> Verse 4 continues. These are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, depending what translation you're reading, a whole lot of different words used here for this word licentiousness. You might see lasciviousness. You might see lewdness. You might see license, depending on which version you're reading. It doesn't really matter. They all carry the same basic intent. And the idea is this. It's because we've now got grace, we can, we can throw that down as a trump card and we can live however we want. I'm turning the grace of God into a license to sin. That's the message of those who've crept in unnoticed. That's a message that's creeping in today as well. And, and it's again, it's this idea of since we're under grace, we don't need to be bound by laws. We don't need to be bound by commands. Grace overrides everything, including our obligation to live according to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We can do anything now because we've got grace. And in doing that, you take this thing, this asset, which is the most precious thing in existence, and you make it cheap. And, and of course, that's what Bonhoeffer famously coined that phrase, cheap grace. Um, and grace is not cheap. Grace was the most expensive thing that's ever been purchased. And so it's a travesty to make it cheap. But uh, it, that's what happens if you use grace as the key to nullifying the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If you say, you know, I don't, I don't believe that command applies to me anymore because I'm under grace. Or, yeah, maybe I probably shouldn't do this thing, but it's okay because I've got grace. Why do you take the commands so seriously? You should be less legalistic and just live in God's grace. That sounds good. But, but they're using it as though grace is some sort of diplomatic immunity. It allows you to just do whatever you want and then, and then say, well, I can do it because I've got grace. As though you could come to God and say, God, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and now you have to forgive me. Like, like you're going to leverage God with his own promises. And uh, gentlemen, that, that, is a, that is a dangerous game to play. I do not recommend that. Because you have to remember that not only is he our Savior, but he is also our Lord. And that's important. And it's a, uh, it's a distinction that Jude observes here. He says, not only are these people ungodly, not only do they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, but they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. He uses those two adjectives, master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the common phrase, right? Common phrase is Lord and Savior. I want to thank my Lord and Savior. He says master and Lord. I think that's, that's probably worth uh, noting. I, I, I think that's, there's, there's something to be seen in there. And it might be because these people that have crept in unnoticed, um, they're, they're not coming out, as I said, and flatly rejecting Jesus. They may say they even take Jesus as Savior. What they reject, and though it may be subtly, is his lordship, is him as master. Lord and master these are terms that have definite implications, right? And the implication is you've got to do what the Lord and Master says. And this isn't going to work for an apostate because the chief end of, of the apostates is to do their own will. I want to do what I want to do. Thank you, God. I'll take the get out of hell free ticket and now just stay out of my way and let me do what I want to do. That's the idea. So that's verse 4. We're given this threefold description of what an apostate looks like. Number one, they're ungodly. Number two, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And number three, they deny the, uh, the mastery and lordship of Christ. And Jude says, uh, these are the kind of people that have long beforehand been marked out for condemnation. Now, I probably should have told you at the beginning, as I see Jude, I've divided it into three sections. The first section we just did, that's verses one through four. Uh, and I, I see that as the exhortation. The next section is verses 5 through 16, and those are the illustrations. And then the last part is 17 to end, and that is the application. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break in between each section and see if there's any questions. And so since we've just finished section one, which is the exhortation of Jude, does anybody have questions on that so far? But they can't be the hard ones like you gave Jerry. All right. When you talk about um, the people that crept into the church, do you think they were well-intending Christians that then perverted the scriptures, or do you think they were people um, that came in with the intention to undermine what was going on? I think that there are well-intended Christians who are deceived and misguided, but I think Jude is addressing people who came in with an agenda. And the agenda was... um, Here's what I think the agenda was. And now, now I'm, this is just speculation. But it seems to me, if you want to, if you're part of a community, you want to sin and you want to get away with it, the best way to do that is to get everybody else on board with you and saying that that thing is okay and get them doing it as well. And now you feel supported. Um, it may be more nefarious than that, but I could see that as, as one potential reason why. Move on. All right. Five through seven. Five through seven. Now, here's where I'm afraid I'm going to lose you guys, okay? Because this is, this is a lot of, uh, there's a lot in here. And this isn't probably not you, but this is me. It, deep down, I read the Bible or I hear the Bible and I think, okay, there's the verses for me and then there's the verses for other guys. And, and this is the section that I look at and go, yeah, this, isn't, this is for other people. This is about the apostate people. It doesn't really bear on me. But my encouragement to you is, though that is true, um, it's still worth looking at these examples and considering, are there any elements of what these people are doing that I need to look out for in my own life? Certainly, we need to be looking out for it in our Christian community, but always the first place to look is in the mirror, right? And see, is there any of this that I see in myself? So, in 5 through 7, we're given three examples demonstrating <clears throat> that God will bring judgment upon people who turn His grace into licentiousness. And the three examples that were given are the Israelites following their deliverance from Egypt, the fallen angels of Genesis 6, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's an interesting observation. These are three different types of groups. We've got Jews, Gentiles, and spiritual beings. And all of them experience the grace of God in a different way. Seems to me perhaps the takeaway from this is that No one who openly rebels against God, no matter who they are, no matter what grace they have been given, um, will be spared from judgment if they abuse that grace. So obviously, we're not going to go into all of these examples in depth, but let me give you the the summary of these. So as far as uh, the Jews, and again, the idea is these all, they've all experienced the grace of God in some way and then turned from it. So those that were delivered from uh, Egypt, from slavery, their grace is that they were God's chosen people, right? They, they, this is the Jewish rice. These are, these are God's people. And he gets them out of there. He parts the Red Sea. He brings a manna. He's got a pillar of fire. He's got a pillar of cloud. He does all these miracles for them. And they get up to the promised land and they say, no, that looks scary and hard. Um, we're going to pass. Uh, we'd rather, in fact, we're just going to die in the, we'd rather die out here in the wilderness than trust you to get us into the promised land. And God says, happy to oblige. You can do that. You can all die in the wilderness. And so that's what they did. Um, So his grace toward them was choosing them, and they rejected that. As far as the the angels in Genesis 6, God's grace towards them was a positional grace. They were in the presence of God. They had this incredible privilege of being in heaven, but they rejected that. They came down, left their proper abode, as as Jude tells us. Um, They did that which they ought not do. They chose to pursue their own desires rather than fulfill the roles that God had assigned to them. And in doing that, they brought corruption into the world such that God had to flood the whole thing and start over. And Jude says, because of that, these angels are kept in everlasting chains under darkness. So they had this grace of being in the presence of God. They rejected it. They get punished. The last one um, is the, uh, the Gentiles. And As I see it, God's grace towards them is what the theologians call common grace. Common grace is the idea that the rain falls on the the wicked and the good. The sun shines on the wicked and the good. 
But as far as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were concerned, they had an abundance of common grace. And what I mean by that is um, the Bible tells us, Genesis 13.10, that it was a lush and beautiful land, that it was, uh, here's what it says, the region of Sodom and Gomorrah was well watered everywhere and like the Garden of Eden. So we're talking about a pretty great place. And as a result of this super rich, abundant, fertile land that they lived in, Ezekiel tells us, Ezekiel 16.49, that the people of Sodom had fullness of food and an abundance of idleness. Does that sound anything? F no, you guys don't recognize that at all. Okay. They're blessed with this abundance of food. They had everything they needed so that they had all this extra time. And rather than savoring those blessings and becoming grateful, they used their idleness to pursue their lusts. Again, like they gave us the roadmap. We are, we are following that path. And um, ultimately, as you know, that those lusts went to the, the extreme and, and they became utterly wicked such that God had to destroy them. With fire, they were burned literally and then they were burned eternally. Takeaway. None of us deserve God's grace, <clears throat> but we have become recipients of it. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, right? That's... That's the gospel message. But when an undeserving person receives a priceless gift, uh, there's no greater insult to the gift giver than to say, yeah, I'll take the gift and now go away. I, I don't want anything to do with you. I reject you. Thanks for the grace, but leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. And Jude's message is, you got to be on the lookout. This, this is what they're bringing. Don't let that into your lives. And again, as I say, implicit within this is the warning for us to start in the mirror and watch in our own lives um, that we don't abuse the grace of God, that we don't receive his gift with indifference, that we don't try to play grace as a trump card, that we don't use it as a license to sin. It's, um, it's, it's easy for me to sit up here and, and point at the failure of churches, broadly speaking, Christendom, the, the fall of Christendom. It's a lot harder to look inside and, and just ask, do I ever, on, on any scale, no matter how large or small, um, do I ever sin with the expectation lurking in the back of my mind, I know I shouldn't do this, but later on I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess and apologize, and then God will give me his grace. You ever, don't nod your head. But maybe some of you have thought that way before. And the fact that that is there terrifies me. And the truth is, as much as it terrifies me, it's probably not nearly enough. All right. <clears throat> verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 through 10, and these I'm going to go briefly over, Jude points out that those who have crept in unnoticed and who are turning the grace of God into licentiousness, these guys, now he's back to the people that have crept in, they exhibit the same characteristics as the apostate groups that God condemned in the previous verses. So they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. And in doing that, um, they're in more danger than they realize because their rejection of authority has implications that, that extend beyond the physical realm and into the spiritual realm. And there's no way to, uh, these are deep verses, so there's no way to really unpack this. But I'll just tell you that it's an interesting study to look at the connection between God's law and the angels. Um, the angels were there when God delivered the law to Moses. And that fact is brought up again and again throughout the Bible. It's a thread you could pull if you wanted to look into it. Starting in Deuteronomy 33, you could follow it into Acts, into Galatians, into Corinthians, into Hebrews. There's some connection there that they were some way intimately involved in the dispensation of God's laws and by changing or by violating those, by ignoring his instructions, some way we are reviling angels. Now, if you ask me, well, just don't ask me what that means because I won't give you an answer because I'm, I'm not clear on it. But the bottom line is those who would turn the grace of God into licentiousness um, reject authority and in doing that they revile angelic majesties. They don't know what they're doing. I, I think that's the thing. They're tinkering with powers that they don't understand. They think they're wise. They think they have insight. They think they have deeper understanding. They think they have a, a link into the spiritual world, but they're playing with things that they, they can't possibly understand. 
Verse 11. Jude has already given us three examples of groups of people who rebel against God. Now he's going to narrow it down to individuals. So he's made the point, look, God will judge whole groups. He'll also deal with individual apostates. So it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. For pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, again, I'm not going to go through the whole stories, but let let me give you my my synopsis of what I think these are here to, to teach us. The way of Cain, as I see it, is unbelief and empty religion. So it's similar to the warning that Paul uh, gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5, those who for, hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. These people, they exercise a form of religion, but it's religion on their own terms, kind of like Cain. He went through some of the motions, did the sacrifice, but inwardly they are filled with jealousy, hatred for the righteous, and, uh, and they have no faith in their deeds or evil. Don't use grace as a license to go through the motions of empty religion. Next one's the heir of Balaam. You all remember Balaam, right? Balaam's, Balaam's the crazy story. Balaam's the the Assyrian sorcerer hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. And, of course, you get the whole story with the donkey there. That's not part of this, but uh, it's weird, so you should read it sometime. But the heir of Balaam is twofold. First, he was a prophet for hire. So he was a prophet for profit. He used his spiritual acumen as a means to increase his finances and his stature. Um, And we've got some of those today, right? These are the guys that you see on TV saying, if you'll just send me $99.99 every month and I can get my new jet and fly to Africa and bring the gospel there because the only way I can get there is on my new jet. So you need to send me some more money. And, um, we got to watch out for those people. I think that's, that's included here with the example of Balaam. But in addition to that, what might have been Balaam's worse error is that he knowingly and willfully led others away from the truth and into sin. He knowingly jeopardized the souls of other people for the sake of personal gain. And God has no kind words for those who would lead others into sin. So as I try to apply this in my life, I think about my kids. Don't use grace as a license to lead your kids into sin by your own example or by ignoring sins that uh, that need to be pointed out. The last one here is the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of Korah is a rebellion against God's appointed authorities. And Korah, you may remember, was one of the guys in the Exodus. And uh, he raised up a bunch of friends. And, and basically, they came to Moses and said, we don't know what makes you think you're so special. You're not that bright. We could probably do a better job. We think we should be in charge. And, uh, and God's response to that is, hey, Moses, why don't you take, Moses, uh, Moses, take a few steps to the side. And then the ground opens up and swallow these, these guys, Korah and his whole band. So it doesn't go well for them. Um, but the point is that they were jealous of another's position and, and they had a desire to usurp him. And again, we are living in an age when the church in mass is rebelling against God's appointed authorities, and most notably, the authority of the apostles, of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, They say, as Korah did, all the congregation is holy, every last one of them. So if I have a different idea on how we ought to live, on what is right and wrong, on what business is it of yours to tell me that that's not what this verse means, that that the verse actually means what it says? What gives you the right to say that? And uh, why do you exalt the apostles' teaching over the assembly of the Lord? Maybe God's given me new revelation. Maybe I have a, a new idea on how we ought to do things. And Jude just reminds us, didn't end well for Korah. It's not going to end well for these guys either. So don't use grace as a license to rebel against the authority of the apostles. All right. Now, having given us three examples of groups that were judged, characteristics of the apostles, three individual apostates, now he's going to give us um, a few metaphors to kind of amplify his point. So here's what he says about the apostates that have crept in. Number one, they're hidden reefs. <clears throat> which is to say they are able to make shipwreck of your soul. Again, they've crept in. So reefs are just below the level of, of the surface, right? They're just under the water. You don't see them until you sail over them and your ship gets wrecked on them. They are waterless clouds carrying the promise of rain but never delivering. You guys probably can't appreciate this 
But this is an easy message for those of us who live in the deserts of Arizona. A waterless cloud is an insult. And so when it's July and it's 114 degrees and the cloud comes up and you just start thinking, yes, finally it's going to rain, it's going to cool things off, and then it just keeps going, you just want to curse that cloud. And, um, and you do, because it's all you can do. But um, if you're Israel and you're living in this agrarian society, you've got to have rain, right? You need this for your, your crops. And so a cloud that doesn't bring rain is a worthless cloud. Same with this next one. They're dead trees with no fruit. They've got, they've got nothing good to offer. Same with a, a cloud that doesn't bring rain is just the same as a tree that doesn't bear fruit. This doesn't give me what I need. It looks like it does. It's a cloud. It's a tree. But I don't get anything out of it. They are stormy seas, which is to say, I think, they make a lot of noise and then they leave a mess behind them. I think often the, the people that are effective at this, at, at creeping in and turning grace into licentiousness, they're very often... Um, charismatic personalities, right? Very, very, um, just big, bold personas that people are inclined to follow. So they may come in with a lot of sound and fury, but then eventually the winds of doctrine that blew them in will just blow them right back out again. And then what gets left behind is a mess. You know, you've been to the beach after the storm and it's just, it's debris and, and nasty brown foam. That's, that's what these guys do. And then finally it says, they are wandering stars. Uh, and that, the, the Greek word there for the wandering stars is planetes, which we get the word planets from. And as far as I understand this, I, I think what he's getting at here is you can't guide your ship by a wandering star, by a planet, right? You, you've got to have fixed something solid, something anchored in order to guide your, your ship. If you're following a wandering star, a planet in the night sky, you, you have no idea where you're going to end up because it's out of sync with its, its, its background, right? It's not in harmony. It's not fixed. So it's apparent, it's kind of obvious, hopefully at this point, Jude's trying to attack this from a whole bunch of different angles so that we don't miss the point at what he's saying here. He's using descriptions, he's using examples, he's using metaphors, and you may say, and you probably are saying, enough, we get it, we got the idea here, let's go on to what's next, but Jude's not quite ready to do that. I would have been, that, but Jude's not. So we're going to keep going with verse 14. So he's given us the warning of God's judgment upon the ungodly examples of the past. Now he's going to point to the future. So not only has God done this in the past, he will also judge these people in the future. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you notice a theme there? <laughs> it's a little bit of ungodliness. So we're seven generations from Adam, and Enoch prophesies that the Lord is going to come with myriads of his holy ones, and he's going to execute judgment on the ungodly. And according to Enoch, when he comes, um, he is coming to judge the ungodly for their ungodly deeds and their ungodly words. Deeds and words. Now, apart from places like this, judgment is another one of those concepts that just isn't preached much today. You just don't hear a lot about it. Um, but this is one of those doctrines that we need to contend for in this generation. And some may say, well, judgment doesn't sound very seeker-friendly. That, that may or may not be true, but <clears throat> we say that we're saved, right? And do you understand that to be saved from something, you actually have to be saved from something? That, that, that there's an implication there? Um, we, we love to talk about God's grace and love, and we should, but... In contending for the faith, we've got to also talk about his justness and his holiness because the truth is you can't actually in any meaningful way whatsoever truly, genuinely begin to appreciate his grace and his love if you don't also understand that he is holy and just. If you don't understand what it is that, that you needed to be saved from, that you needed judgment because God is holy is just. Justice mandates that those who violate justice get judgment. And, uh, and only upon recognizing that do you actually start to feel um, the true weight of his glory, the, the magnitude of his grace, the vastness of his love. You can't appreciate that if you don't know that you have been delivered from something. And 
that those who don't get this grace of God aren't going to be delivered from that equally. You know, that motivates us to evangelism. So rather than tremble at his grace, uh, no, we should tremble at his grace rather than trample his grace. That's the, the line there. Verse 16, briefly, this is Jude's commentary on Enoch's prophecy. He says, these guys, they're grumblers, they're malcontents, they're following their own sinful desires, they're loudmouth boasters, they're showing favoritism to gain advantage. So I see this kind of as the, uh, the anti-fruits of the Spirit. These are like the, the rotten fruits of the Spirit is what he's describing here. These are the traits of ungodly men. All right, so that's, that's the end of the, uh, the illustrations. And the next section, we'll make a transition here, but let me stop again and see if there's any questions uh, on anything there. You guys are ready for bed. <clears throat> I get it. Okay. Verse 17 through 23. <clears throat> um, this is the application. Here's where Jude lays out a response plan for us. He's given us the warning. <clears throat> He's given us a bunch of illustrations of what it looks like, what to look out for. And now he says, here's what to do about it. <clears throat> so, the first exhortation in this response plan is to remember. And I take that from verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the words of the apostles. Remember their doctrine. Remember their warnings. And what was their warning? That's verse 18. That they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Now, certainly the, uh, the apostles said a lot about the end times, right? We, we, there's a lot in the New Testament about um, what things will look like before the end times. We, we can't cover all of that. But I do want to go through a couple of verses in a row here. And as I go through these, just try to stick with me on them. Um, I want you to listen for something. Listen for the connection between the phrase that talks about time and, and then uh, its connection to the increase of apostasy or lawlessness. Here's the first one, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. The time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, <clears throat> but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So Paul says to Timothy at this time, the time will come when people will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. Okay, another one, 1 Timothy 4.1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Another one. 2 Peter 3.3, 3. knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.1-5, realize this, in the last times, difficult times will come, people will hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. And then 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, I know that's a lot, but hopefully you pick up on the theme there, right? I don't know where we're at <clears throat> on the timeline of history. Um, I, I don't know, are, are these the last days or are there generations to go? I don't know the answer to that. What I know is these were written 2,000 years ago, and that's a lot of time for things to proceed from bad to worse. And what I take from that is that we in our generation and the generations to come have to be all the more vigilant, all the more steadfast to hold fast to sound doctrine and to guard against those who are merely out to tickle ears or those who are out to turn the grace of God into a license. And again, uh, at the risk of being redundant here, the way we do that is by latching on to the authoritative teaching of the apostles, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in those verses that I previously read, um, if you were paying super close attention, you may have noticed that they also contain another element, and that is they all talk about, in some way, the element of desire. 
because it is desire that is the motivation for perpetuating false doctrines. People want what they desire instead of what God desires. And Jude points that out as well. This is verses 18 and 19. They, that is the apostles, were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts or desires. These are the ones who cause divisions, who are worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. Now, uh, it's possible we may well be living in the times that the apostles were warning about. Maybe not, but maybe we are. Um, and the church for so many years has not done the instruction here. They have not turned away from those who have caused divisions, who have divided the word wrongly. And, and so the church is getting divided and divided and divided again, such that it seems to me it would be hard to find a large gathering of professing Christians who would also say with total conviction that they completely believe and agree with the undiluted, unchanged, full-strength teaching of the New Testament in its entirety. I think those people are growing fewer and farther between. And what's worse than that is that I think we have reached the point um, where the tables have actually turned completely. So that if you do what Jude is exhorting you to do here, and that is earnestly contend for the faith, you will be accused of being the one that causes the divisions. You will be told that you are creating division, that you are being legalistic. You will be told that your rigid adherence to a literal interpretation of Scripture is unloving and, and, and that you are creating problems in the church. If that happens, the warnings were clear. These times were predicted. Why not be surprised if that happens to you? And uh, so the first instruction is to remember. Remember that the apostles said that this would happen, so don't be surprised by it. <clears throat> Next instructions, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And here I'll just briefly say, what's in these passages is what's in contrast to the passages about the apostates. So the mockers in verse 18, they tear down the faith by causing divisions. He says, you build up the faith. They are devoid of the spirit. You should pray in the spirit. They are worldly-minded. You be eternally-minded, waiting anxiously for the return of Christ. That's how you stand in, uh, in opposition to them. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to do any more on that. Let's go to verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I see three different groups observed here. I've got the doubting, the burning, and the polluted. And it seems to me that that's kind of describing for us a progression, a, a, a spectrum of um, a spectrum where people are in danger. So you start out with those who are maybe just a little bit confused or, or misinformed, and then you move into those who are kind of in danger, and then you move to those who are maybe the, the actual ones who are doing the deceiving, who are fully immersed in sin and false doctrine. And to these three different you know, places on the spectrum, he gives us three different potential responses to that. First is have mercy. Second is save them. And then the last is have mercy, but with fear and hatred for sin. And it seems to me the idea here is um, there, there are different situations require different approaches as we contend for the faith. <clears throat> I think this is one of the questions that was maybe brought up yesterday. It is a spectrum. We're dealing with people at different stages of their life, of their Christian journey. So some people, they're just struggling. Maybe they're a new Christian or maybe they've got some, some bad teaching and they're just wrestling with some things and they just, they just need some merciful encouragement. They just need someone to, to come alongside of them. Others, they, maybe they've gone a little further and they're, you know, they're, they're getting into some dangerous doctrine. Um, maybe they're at a church that's, that's preaching things that are blatantly untrue. They're in a situation where they're soon going to be consumed if someone doesn't come and snatch them out of the fire. And if, the visual for me here is Lot 
Remember, the angels are trying to get Lot to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're like, come on, we got to go, we got to go. And he says, no, nah, I'm not ready. And finally, they grab him by the arm, and they, and they pull him out. They save him from the fire. And that's, that's what I think he has in mind here. And then still others um, are in such a dire situation, are so deep in sin that <clears throat> as you get involved into their lives, it's, it's dangerous. And the mercy that you show them has to be balanced with, uh, with fear and, and with a hatred for sin um, so, that, so that you are not enticed into it because it's, it's just that bad of a situation. So we've got this spectrum. We deal with people on different levels. But in each case, um, our strategy in contending for the faith begins with mercy. Now, this is several minutes ago, but you might remember <clears throat> the very beginning of the book, all the way back in verse 2, uh, before Jude gives his admonition, he starts out with a blessing. And he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Multiplied to you, not added to you. And I think that's instructive because these are the traits that we need as we earnestly contend for the faith. As we try to figure out where people are at on this spectrum and, and we're dealing with them, we need a multiplied measure of mercy, peace, and love so that we can contend without being contentious. Those are two different things. Contend means we're struggling, we're striving. Contentious just means we're given over to argument and we're trying to provoke you know, discussion and, and arguments. And that's not our goal. Our goal is restoration and deliverance for souls that are lost or in danger. It's not about winning arguments. That's not our objective here. It's not to show how smart you are. If you approach contending for the faith from a position of pride, the, the odds are it's not going to be effective, first of all, and really we show ourselves not to really be any better than the apostates that Jude had been describing in this book that are focused on self. The only hope of delivering a person from error is to do it from a position of mercy, peace, and love. With that said, <clears throat> mercy is not weakness. Mercy is not a lack of conviction. Mercy is not even niceness. Our culture has adopted an idea that niceness is the chief virtue. It, you can't say that to them. That wouldn't be nice. That's not a biblical idea. The, the chief virtue of the Bible is love. And sometimes love demands that you confront people in sin because their soul is in jeopardy. And they may not think that that's very nice, but it is loving. And the way that you demonstrate that it's loving is approaching those conversations with mercy and compassion and love. So our mandate is to lovingly contend for the faith, filled with compassion, seeking peace, but never at the expense of truth. We cannot contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints by watering it down or ignoring the uncomfortable bits. Now, that, that's the end of that section. I just have one or two kind of concluding remarks here, but any questions um, on, on this last section here? Yeah, Nathaniel, um, in 20, 22 and 23, do you think that he's talking about um, like the non-believer or maybe the believer who is confused or, or immature or not really sure what they believe? <clears throat> I, I, I think that he's talking about the whole, the whole gamut. I, I guess that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make is we don't know ultimately, if where a person's at in their walk with Christ, whether they're saved or not. And so, yeah, I think, I think the first people he's talking about are those that, are the, are the first ones you described, they're just, maybe they're new in the faith, or, or maybe they just, they just don't know any better. I don't think these are necessarily people that are intentionally trying to be deceitful or wicked. They're just, they just maybe don't know. And so he seems to have a pretty gracious response. So just have mercy and encourage them. But then we go through and we get to those that that are in bad, bad shape. And whether they're saved or not is, you know, not for us to necessarily judge, but I mean, as, as you know, it's um, when you've got someone that's professing to be a Christian and, and living in willful, unrepentant sin, we've got an obligation to confront them about that. And then if they refuse to repent, then we're breaking fellowship with them. Uh, did that get anywhere near what you were asking? Okay. Uh, quick question on that too, and kind of maybe just like a theme from the weekend that I'm hearing. Um, so 
just with like earnestly contending for the faith, do you think there's a point where we can like earnestly contend and like, if we're not apathetic or like the power of living with like godly purpose, like, is there any way, like, it seems like there's like a lot of like kind of view, like our world's kind of come to like this negative head and that's, I mean, it's reality of what it is. Is there any way I was talking with Seth about earlier? Is there any way we could like, we reverse that through this like earnest discernment? Like we have like 80 guys right here and like, I work at Men of Iron and our things like to change the culture one man at a time. And every guy here is part of a family, part of a church. Like, is there a way that we can do that and kind of like reverse this head that's coming to in like a negative way? And I'm not sure. Does that make sense? Like, cause like we're all here and we all have this purpose to share like the gospel and share what we believe. Like Dan was sharing earlier, like he's cranking yeah. out Christians like every time he goes anywhere. So like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> Like, does that make, yeah, does that make I'm sense? not sure. Hey, let yeah, me try. Be, yeah. Let me try. And if I miss what you're saying, come okay. back at me. Okay. okay? It might be a question for tomorrow too. Just was wondering. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I am talking, well, as I understand Jude, he's talking about those who have crept into the church. Yeah. So we're talking about people that are professing Christ. Mm -hmm. That's a different category than unsaved people. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's a whole other ball game. Okay. Um, as we as we're dealing with them, yeah, of course, we're, we're I mean, grace, mercy, and love is is for sure a starting yeah. point. And I'm not I, I I know it sounds this way probably. I'm not trying to not grace, mercy, and love. I, I'm gratefully yeah. desperate for those things. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying is that within the body of Christ, the battlefield that we exist in mm -hmm. is: Are we going to keep what the Bible says, or are we going to take it as a buffet and, and just throw out the lima beans? Yeah. Because that's what's happening is, is we're going through and saying, like this, like this, don't like that one, like this one. Culture says you're dumb if you believe that. We're going to skip that. And they go down the line. That's what scares me. That's, that's okay. what I'm trying to talk about. Okay. That sounds good. But I don't want, I don't want you to think it's negative. No, no, no. It's okay. good. No, I agree with that. I just was seeing if there's like a way. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Sure. Well, okay. All right. Well, for sure, approach the unbeliever in love. For sure, approach the professing believer in love. It's just that love sometimes may mean pointing out painful things. I, I've used this example in the past, um, and I won't tell the story because we're out of time, but I, I, uh, several years ago, I went in to see a doctor because I was sick. He was a GI doctor, and, um, and he called me late at night to tell me that I had leukemia. Now, he's not a cancer doctor. He's just a GI guy, and I could tell he was terrified on the phone. He did not want to make the call, and I've thought about this later. I thought, you know, this guy could have said to himself, I do not want to make this call. If I go and tell this guy that he's dying, he's not going to want to hear that. It's probably going to be an emotional situation. Uh, it's going to be a lot of pressure. I don't know if I'll be able to answer all of his questions. I'm just going to not, I'm just going to not wreck his night and let it go. But that, that would have been one approach. That would have been maybe the nice way to do it from his perspective. But then, of course, I would have died shortly thereafter. And so that's the way you have to look at a person's soul. Dying, dying physically is far less significant than dying spiritually and eternally. And so it may be true that it's going to be hard to confront people sometimes with information they don't want to hear. But the fact is, if you are not saved, you have a terminal disease. And that disease results in eternal separation from God. And the most loving thing you can do is present the truth of the gospel to that person. It would be evil and unloving to ignore it. Anything else? All right, let me just wrap this up. We've got about one minute left, two minutes. <clears throat> so we read the apostles' warnings. We saw apostasy was going to increase. We saw that it's been 2,000 years since those were written. That's a lot of time. So our calling is to become men of faith who are grounded in the Word. That is, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And... Hopefully, it goes without saying that you cannot earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints if you do not know what was delivered to them. You understand that? You've got to know what's in the book. You've got to know what's there. You can't remember what the apostles told us if you haven't learned it in the first place. And what that means is uh, we've got to become men who study the Word of God. That, that's just the bottom line. This is not a part of your life that you can outsource. And that's kind of the point that Jerry was getting at, on, if I understood him, um, on this, this idea of the, the laity and clergy distinction. What that produced is an outsourcing of a study of the Bible. I don't have to do it. The pastor does that for me. And maybe there was a season in history where you could get away with that. But that season's gone. That, that's over now. 
Now you can't just assume that whatever the pastor stands up and says is actually going to be the gospel truth. You've got to get in the word and find out for yourself. And just so we're clear, myself and any of the other speakers up here wouldn't hold themselves to any other standard than that. So, you know, be Bereans, receive the teaching with eagerness, but then go home and, and search the scriptures and see if the things that you heard this weekend are true. If they're not, move on, ignore them. Um, but if they are, you know, we, we got to do something with that. Everything that we do in life has to be filtered through the Word of God. So we've got to become men of the book. And I just, I cannot commend this to you strongly enough. And as I said, the, the days are passing when you can just trust that anybody that gets up in a pulpit and starts preaching is actually giving you truth. So pray in the Spirit with leading, His leading and His guidance um, that, that God would use you, that He would train you, that He would teach you. Um, that he would help you in your study of the word so that you could earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend in your own lives um, to be found faithful. Contend in the lives of others. Contend in the lives of your families. And do all of it with faith in the one, as Jude says here at the end, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, and to Him be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen.